Uh, I guess we'll get started. We have a few more people outside, but we will get started. Thank you all for coming today. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, I want to give a special shout out today to our conference department, who always do such a terrific job with our events. Uh, but a special shout out to uh, Catherine Chacon, who helped with our books. Um, we're promoting four terrific books today. And uh, I hope you all will take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, welcome also to those of you watching online who can't buy books online, but you can, or you can buy them online, you just can't buy them here at Cato. Um, you've heard about that buying books online thing, right? It's, it's, gonna, it's, gonna, <laughs> it's gonna catch on, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, so today we're talking about the return of great power competition. The Trump administration has emphasized the reemergence of great power competition as the organizing principle for U.S. foreign policy. Upon assuming the reins as acting uh, Secretary of Defense earlier this month, Patrick Shanahan reportedly boiled down the department's priorities to three words, China, 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 or as President Trump would say, China. Uh, I wondered months ago, I wondered, what scholarship uh, should inform the U.S. government's understanding of how to compete with China and Russia, and how will international relations change in an era when new actors are challenging the status quo? The history of great power politics can provide some clues. Over time, states have risen above rivals and fallen to new challengers, but the transitions have not always been disastrous nor even violent. Some states have successfully managed their decline, while others have resorted to aggressive posturing or even war to try to maintain their status at all costs. We're joined today by four distinguished scholars who are uniquely qualified to opine on the history and future of great power relations. Let me briefly introduce them. David M. Edelstein is Vice Dean of Faculty in Georgetown College and an Associate Professor in the Department of Government the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, and the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. And yes, he has the longest title of anyone on the stage. He studies great power politics, military intervention, and the causes of war and peace. His work has been published in International Security, Security Studies, Foreign Affairs, and Survival. He is the author of, hold it up, David, for everyone to see, Over the Horizon. That's what he'll be talking about mostly today. He earned his PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, next to me is Stacy Goddard. She's a professor of political science at Wellesley College and incoming director of the Madeleine K. Albright Center at Wellesley College. Uh, her research engages uh, with core issues of international security and in particular the study of the causes and conduct of war in addition to when might makes right, when might makes right. See, that was her cue, when might makes right. She is also the author of, all of these are my books, by the way, so they have to give them back to me. when. She's also the author of Indivisible Territory and the Politics of Legitimacy, Jerusalem and Northern Ireland, published by Cambridge Press in 2010. She's a member of the Governing Council of the International Security Studies section of the International Studies Association, which is the primary organizational body for international relations scholars. She earned her PhD from Columbia. Uh, next to me is Paul K. McDonald. He's the Associate Professor of Political Science at Wellesley. He previously taught at Williams College and has held research positions at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Kennedy School of Government, the Olin Institute for Strategic Studies at Harvard University, and the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He is the author of Twilight of the Titans. 
uh, and he's published articles in the American Political Science Review, International Security, International Organization, Security Studies, Review of International Studies and Foreign Affairs, and many others. And he also earned his PhD from Columbia. And last is Josh R. Itzkowitz Schifrensen. He's Assistant Professor of International Relations at Boston University's Pardee School, where he focuses on the intersection of international security and diplomatic history, particularly the rise and fall of great powers and the origins of grand strategy. He previously taught at Texas A&M. His work has appeared in International Security, Journal of Strategic Studies and Foreign Affairs, among others. And he is mostly talking today about falling, uh, rising titans, falling giants, uh, his next major product project examines U.S. foreign policy in the 1990s and early 2000s. He earned his uh, bachelor's degree from Brandeis and his Ph.D. from MIT. So with that, I'll let uh, David get us started, and uh, we'll go from there. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, first, thank you, Chris and Cato, for hosting us, uh, and thank you all for, for coming out to be here today. Uh, and let me just say that that... I consider everybody else on this panel, I consider to be not only colleagues, but friends. And, and in fact, I think we would all say that our books are, are the product of sort of the academy at its best in that my book is better for having interacted with, with all of them and learned from them and disagreed with them. And, and I think we'll probably maybe see some of that, that disagreement today. Um, but it's great to be on a, to have this occasion to come together with them. Um, so my book starts with uh, the puzzle of, of trying to understand the specific instance of what some would see to be unexpected cooperation between the United States and a rising China starting, let's say, at the end of the Cold War. For many, it was apparent in the 1990s that China was already going to be a rising power, that it was going to have substantial military power over time. And the puzzle is, why would the United States, through various forms of economic, diplomatic, and even military exchange, actually, in a way, make China more capable, more powerful, and better able to grow over time? Uh, and what I, the argument that I make with that specific case, and then generalize it to looking at a broader set of cases in the book, is to focus on a variable that I don't think has been studied very much in, in the international relations literature, which is the time horizons of political leaders and states in international politics. So essentially what I argue in the specific case of, US, of the US and China is that uh, part of the reason why you had this cooperation was that the United States, uh, especially if one looks after 9-11, the United States becomes very focused on immediate challenges on post 9-11 on the threat of terrorism and then the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and is not paying as much attention to the long-term threat posed by the rise of China. China, on the other hand, sees itself as rising over the long term and it is in the interest of rising powers like that to remain patient and to avoid provocations that might draw attention to uh, any threat it might pose over the long term. So this combination of Chinese patience, of long-term Chinese, long um, Chinese time horizons and more short-term American time horizons allows for this cooperation to uh, continue over time. Uh, I look in the book at a series of case studies of rising great powers and declining great powers who are interacted with them and seek to make the argument that essentially it's this interaction of time horizons that explains patterns of conflict and cooperation uh, between different rising and declining powers over time. 
Uh, I'll wrap up just by saying that uh, in the, the, you may be wondering now if we're looking at the kind of the U.S. and China today, what has changed? And I think what we've seen is that the U.S., uh, as a consequence of perhaps paying less attention or at least devoting less resources and thinking more comprehensively about the war against on terrorism, about Iraq, about Afghanistan, has become more focused on the long-term threat from, from China. And China, in turn, has grown impatient for a variety of reasons that I, I'd be happy to discuss. And this combination of Chinese impatience, drawing more attention to its long-term intentions, and uh, America's sort of focus, I think, more on that long-term threat has led to some of the rivalry and uh, potential for conflict that we see emerging now. Great. Thanks, David. Um, I want to say right at the outset that this is a terrific book. I really liked it. I, I was particularly impressed with how in four pages near the end, you managed to boil down sort of the essence of Sino-U.S. relations and sort of really some of the key questions. You've already, you sort of alluded to those. Um, but I am also, I, I picked up on this distinction you made near the end between politicians and statesmen, right? Mm. Um, and as I was reading the book, I was sort of struck by the difference between sort of short-sightedness or myopia versus um, what I might call cowardice or sort of craven, right? So in other words, the difference between not seeing a future danger, that's one thing, not seeing it, uh, as opposed to seeing the danger but choosing not to address it um, because, well, it'll be somebody else's problem. Uh, how important do you think those distinctions are or, or are these distinctions without difference ultimately? So I actually think it's very important. So I, I, apologies for getting a bit in the weeds here on, on some of the international relations debates, right? But one of the counter arguments to the argument I make is precisely an argument that that what states have been doing when they put off these long-term threats is that they, in their vernacular, they buck pass, right? They sort of put them off. They want somebody else to pick them up and do something about that threat. The distinction I'm making here is that I think in a lot of the cases that I focus on, the, the declining power that is kind of focused on its short-term immediately what's happening to it isn't even attuned to that long-term potential threat, right? So they haven't even recognized the buck that needs to be passed, right? And I think that's, a, that's an important kind of conceptual distinction for exactly the reasons that you, you point to. Mm -hmm. Very good. One other thing that came up in the book, I think you clarified it, but I think it'd be important for those in the audience who haven't yet read it, and of course they all will, um, is is uncertainty, right? Yep. You stress the importance of uncertainty. And, the, and the, my first marginalia on this were, well, this is ubiquitous, right? The notion of uncertainty is we all operate under uncertainty. You explain a little bit more. You, I think you do ultimately settle on a, on a more sophisticated explanation, but you want to talk a little bit more about how uncertainty factors into the now or later dilemma here. Yeah, so there's, a, there's an argument I make in the book that I, I think the term uncertainty as it's been used in the international relations literature has been, has been misleading. Uh, and I go back to some old kind of Frank Knight work on uncertainty and risk, uh, and thinking about the distinction between it. And the distinction here is between sort of true uncertainty, right, where you really don't have any idea, right, that the analogy that the uh, economics literature sort of um, sometimes draws to this is where you, you stick your hand in a, in a, 
you know, a bag that has different colored balls in it, and you don't even know the distribution of the balls that are in that bag, right? So you have no idea what you're gonna, what you're gonna pull out of that, that bag, right? Um, and I actually think situations like that in which there's true uncertainty about future intentions in international politics are pretty unusual. And what I would distinguish them from, them from is risk, right? Which is an actual probabilistic assessment of the likelihood that something is gonna happen in the future. So you know the distribution of balls that are in that bag, so when you pull them out, you have a reasonable estimate of, of what color you're likely to get, or at least what the percentages mm -hmm. are. Why this is important is uh, because I think one of the arguments that's been made in the, the IR literature about rising great powers is that states assume the worst about rising great powers because their intentions are uncertain, right? And I think the mistake that's been made in that, that argument is a leap to having any uncertainty about another state's future intentions, which is to say having some probabilistic assessment of what they're likely to do, is equivalent to having absolutely no idea what they're gonna do in the future, right? right? right. That's a big leap, and it's an unnecessary leap, and I think it's an unreasonable sort of estimate or sort of understanding of how leaders actually behave. So the argument I try and develop in the book is much more about how do, how do leaders respond to their own probabilistic assessments of how others are likely to act in the future, and how does that influence the, the strategies they adopt? Great, thank you. I think that's a perfect segue for Stacy's book, and Stacy talks a lot about intentions, and, mm -hmm. and so why don't you explain a little bit, Stacy, about your approach, and, and then uh, I'll follow up. Absolutely, and, and again, to, to, to echo what David said, we're, we're all, I think, very grateful to be here. Thank you all for coming, and, and, and again, to echo uh, what you said, this is really not only a, a collection of, of, of projects, but it's, a, it's, it's kind of the manifestation of arguably a decade of interaction amongst all of us, um, and a lot of disagreement, but I think that, 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 that again, all the books are, are better for it. Um, so like David, uh, I take up the question of um, why it is that great powers choose to accommodate some rising powers and choose to either confront or contain others. Um, and the first thing that this book then obviously tries to take on is what seems to be a rather resilient myth that all of these power transitions somehow lead to conflict. Um, I'm not quite sure why this, this has been so resilient, uh, but, it, but it has <laughs> been. There are, there are recent publications on this um, as well. But the, but the fact is you don't need to just go to, for example, the United States-British power transition to find cases where there's a lot of accommodation of rising powers in international politics. Um, obviously not all the time, and so the goal of my book is to use historical cases to explain this variation um, with the obvious eye I think all of us have uh, towards the question of, of a rising China and how the United States does and how they should be thinking about uh, China's rising power and the types of grand strategies that are appropriate um, to, to, to manage that type of shift in, in power. Looking out into the literature, I did end up focusing on the question of intentions. And that is to say, making the argument that great powers decide to accommodate rising powers when they think they have rather limited aims, and they decide to confront or contain when they see a rising power that has revolutionary aims. That is to say, a rising power that's interested not in playing in the existing rules of the game, but kind of, over, uh, kind of overturning the existing territorial, political, and economic order. Now, what I said there is absolutely nothing new. There's a ton of literature that talks about the ways in which great powers look for a rising power's intentions in order to try to respond. And most of this literature is interested in, in, in saying that what great powers do is they look at what rising powers are doing. So in particular, are rising powers taking actions 
that suggests that this rising power is going to use its newfound might to harm the great power in the future? Are they adopting offensive military strategies, right? Are they building up their offensive capabilities? Are they building competing economic institutions, right? Um, others argue that, rising, that great powers look to a rising power's potential interests to try to figure out, is this a revolutionary power, one that generally will play by the rules? Is the rising power a democracy? Does it have a capitalist system? Those types of, of ideas of having maybe shared interest as being something that tells you about the intentions of a rising power. Now, I really buy the story that great powers look to rising powers' intentions, but what really struck me is the way in which great powers oftentimes have little sense of what's going on with the rising power by looking simply at what they do. And the example that, one of the examples I oftentimes use with my students is to think about how we judge China's intentions based on what China's doing in the South China Seas, or how we judge their intentions based on what they're doing with uh, One Belt, One Road. And basically, if you put this out to a group of students, they're going to have markedly different ideas about what China is doing, says it's about its intentions. And that's, I think, you know, not just my students. I think if you take 10 policymakers and put them in a room, you're going to have a hard time building the consensus about what each of these actions mean. And it's not just China. This is not just the United States being uncertain or ambivalent in some sort of unique way. If you look at this, the cases I, I, I look in my book, Britain trying to figure out what Prussia is doing, what Bismarck's doing in the 1860s when he goes to war with Denmark. What does that mean in the future? Britain trying to figure out exactly what the United States is doing when they take Florida in, in the early 19th century. Are this, the United States just taking Florida from, from, from Spain? Or are they actually trying to gain control over the entirety of the Caribbean and up in Britain's economic system, right? So this still sparks some debate. So what I end up doing in the book is saying it matters not simply what a rising power is doing, but how they are explaining their actions, or as I put in the book, how they legitimate their expansionist ambitions, right? And this basically just draws on human nature, right? If, if you break a rule, if you engage in an action that maybe looks a little ambitious or expansionist, people are watching, you are going to try to justify what you're doing, right? And the reason you're justifying what you're doing is ultimately you don't want to be punished, right? You don't want somebody coming back and saying, you broke a rule and now we actually have to make this costly for you, right? So rising powers are engaged in very similar behavior, right? They break a rule. They take some territory. They build a different economic institution. They ask for a little bit of reform in a political institution. Right? They think that if they want to stave off confrontation or containment, they can do so by framing that action as being consistent with the existing international order. So one belt and one road, that's not a challenge to the United States international system. That's complementary. That's building the infrastructural hardware to the United States liberal international order software, so to speak. So all of this ends up being a signal from the rising power that we're not a revolutionary power. We don't have revolutionary intentions or limited aims, and it would be best for everybody involved to accommodate us in the international system. There's a lot of stuff in the book on how that works, why it is that states would pay attention to rhetoric at all, because ultimately isn't this cheap talk, and I'd be happy to answer that. I end up bringing this through four historical case studies of, of Prussia rising in the United States, um, Hitler's Germany and Britain's reaction to them, and, and rising Japan in the 1920s and 30s. But ultimately, I try to speak a lot both in the intro and uh, concluding chapters on lessons for China, which again, I won't say here because I'm sure that's going to be not only a bulk of discussion, but questions. So. Uh, 
It'll come up. I'm sure uh, it'll come up. Uh, two concepts that, that caught my attention, Stacy, which I, maybe you could elaborate on just a little bit more, is, uh, and you alluded to this in your remarks, you talk about institutional vulnerability. What do you, what do you mean there? Because I, initially, I'll be honest, initially I was sort of skeptical, but the more you explained it over the course of the book, the more I came around to that. So, so explain that a little bit. And, and yeah, so this was something, one of the big puzzles I had was why it is that anybody would listen to rhetoric, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I try to say is that not every great power is inclined to listen to what a rising power says. That in some ways, it, it, what part of what has to happen is the great power has to be particularly vulnerable. And I think I even say at one point, maybe even a little gullible. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. wanting to hear that this rising power isn't going to be a threat. Mm -hmm. And part of what I say here is that the more the existing great power depends on existing institutions for their own position in the international system, the more they are likely to believe the rhetoric that the rising power is using, <laughs> right? right? And I think one of the big examples here is Britain in the interwar period. Britain, their, their material power is, is, is declining, they, they are weak. So the more they hear Hitler actually say, look, we're gonna be a good European, all we need are these minor reforms to the Versailles system, they, they, they really want to believe that. To believe. So it makes them more gullible to this right. type of language. Okay, very good. So that. Um, that leads into a second question, which I think is actually relevant for both you and for David. Um, is the key here having good intentions or making the other side or other people believing you have good intentions? Mm -hmm. Because I can imagine, um, I don't know, people at the Pentagon wanting desperately for no one in China to actually read your book. Because I think it's possible that you could interpret it exactly the way you just framed it, which is precisely because so many here in the United States believe that the current system serves our interests so well, mm -hmm. and that an alternative would be so damaging, there is a on there is a desire to believe, want to believe that that that, that China's intentions are to be a rule-abiding nation. How would you respond to that? I mean, I think ultimately that the, the, the the dynamics that are pushed forward really are about believing intentions. But, the, but this is actually the thing that I, th I think it's worth keeping in mind, both about rising powers and great powers, right? And this goes to, I think, David, a lot of what you were saying about uncertainty. Um, I actually think that, that, that maybe I think there is more uncertainty than what we think of in the international system. And, and, and not simply uncertainty in terms of what you don't know, but really uh, an uncertainty that borders on indeterminacy, mm -hmm. right? Um, so if you were to ask me, for example, what should we believe about China's intentions right now? What, or what are the real intentions? Honestly, I think that China isn't even particularly right. certain about their long-term right. intentions, right? right? And that's not surprising. There is so much that China is building right now that is likely to change their own intentions, right? One belt, one road might actually pull them in to new situations that they can't even anticipate. There's so much indeterminacy in their own domestic intentions as well, that I think it really comes down to this constant trying to interpret what's on the ground in the moment, mm -hmm. right, rather than trying to fix these are the real intentions, right? right? Because those, those are ultimately gonna be shifting. Sure. Um, you have any, you wanna add anything to that or pick up on that? No, I think the only thing I'd, I'd add. Because initially this was a so, question I was gonna ask you. Yeah, for, no, I, I mean, it's a great question, right? I, I do think, and this is, because my book emphasizes intentions as well, right, but I, what I ran up against and what the kind of question I got from a lot of people, right, is isn't there a point at which kind of a state's efforts to portray certain intentions, to convince another that they have certain intentions, 
becomes irreconcilable with the capabilities that they have, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I take your point that there's a certain indeterminacy to capabilities and the Chinese may not even know what they're, but if the Chinese continue to develop significant military capabilities, don't we get to a point where as much as they might talk about, you know, oh, we're just, you know, this, this is our peaceful rise, right? right? That right. becomes hard to reconcile with what they're, they're okay. yeah. Um, one last thing, Stacy, which, um, you talk a lot about uh, multivocal strategies. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, and yeah, this, this this is a bit of uh, jargon I, I stole from sociology. Um, and as much as I actually hate porting new jargon, and I thought this was really useful because the idea here is that rising powers, at least some rising powers, can be particularly good at maintaining, maintaining ambigu ambiguity about their intentions, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that a lot of this comes from the fact that certain powers are able to claim that they actually have multiple interests simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples I use here are, is Bismarck's Prussia, right? Bismarck's Prussia is simultaneously a conservative power, right? It's a, a bastion of conservative legitimacy in, in Europe in the, in the late 19th century. But it's got all these German nationalist movements running around as well. So it can make plausible claims to being both, right? Mm -hmm. And what that means is that when Bismarck goes out and says things that sound both conservative and nationalist, and that's really strange. Those are contradictory principles, and people hear both. Right. And I think you can say that's the same thing about China. Both a nationalist type of rhetoric that is going on, sometimes even a more, an, an imperial one, but also a liberal one going on, right. it's because China is both. Yep, very good. Excellent. Thank you. All right, Paul, uh, Twilight of the Titans. Um, you wrote this with Joe Parent, um, uh, who I presume is back at South Bend, but, but tell us about your book and how it factors into this discussion. Sure, great. So uh, our book focuses on the declining powers. So we uh, asked the question of how declining powers respond to sustained periods of economic troubles. So if you're engaged in, in a period of relative economic decline and some other power surpasses you, how does that affect your foreign policy. And, and the base assumption is that it creates lots of problems and tensions for you as a country, right? Presumably other powers are gaining in strength, so new security threats might be emerging. At the same time, you have relatively fewer resources to deal with those emerging security threats. So it puts you in a dilemma. And our question was, well, how do great powers who are declining try to get out of that dilemma? So we went and looked at the literature, and the answer that we found in the literature was, not well. That seemed to be the assumption. Um, so there's a group of, of authors who argue that declining great powers tend to try to fight their way out of their problems, that they try to use threats or bluffs or intimidation to slow or reverse their decline. Um, there's another set of authors who argue that declining great powers become paralyzed domestically, that bureaucratic interests or interest groups sort of mobilize to sort of lay claims to uh, shrinking pies or to try to protect uh, their uh, favored uh, projects. Um, and so we wanted to know if that was actually the case. If we developed a list of all uh, moments of great power decline, would we see those being the types of foreign policies that they adopted, either paralysis or aggression? Um, or might there be alternative foreign policies that they could uh, adopt? So we went and looked at every uh, great power transition since 18. Uh, 70, the date when we got reliable uh, economic uh, cross-national yearly data. Uh, and then we traced the, the grand strategies of 16 declining powers since that time. Uh, and what we actually found is that the most common response to a moment of relative economic decline wasn't lashing out or paralysis, uh, but rather what we call retrenchment. That is an effort by the declining power to bring its means and ends 
into alignment, to find ways to change its foreign policy to make it more flexible and adaptable to a new distribution of power. Um, and one of the fascinating things we discovered is that across those 16 cases, there was great variation in how great powers uh, adopted a policy of retrenchment. Uh, and that great powers were very adept at tailoring their strategies of retrenchment to both the speed and depth of their decline, but also their geopolitical circumstances. Uh, and one of the ways that uh, declining great powers would do that is they would mix and match domestic and international types of retrenchment. So domestically, we see uh, uh, examples of declining great powers trying to reduce uh, their spending on foreign policy and defense to sort of lessen the burden. We see declining great powers uh, revamping what they're investing in, in, so changing their force structure to try to tailor uh, their military forces, say, to a particular uh, geopolitical circumstance. Uh, we see a lot of reforms of institutions, taming bureaucracies, trying to get them to do more uh, with less. We see reinvesting of resources domestically to try to improve competitiveness or of key industries or future uh, industries. So we see a lot of domestic pathways to reform that declining great powers can use. Uh, and then we also look internationally and see a lot of international pathways as well. Some declining great powers uh, reposition their forces, so they change their global posture to try to strengthen deterrence at key uh, select uh, uh, points. Uh, we see declining great powers negotiating with adversaries to try to defuse flashpoints over marginal or irrelevant uh, interests. Uh, we also see declining great powers trying to shift burdens to allies and partners. Um, so we actually see a range of both domestic uh, and international uh, responses to decline on the part of declining great powers. And the, the um, upshot of our analysis is actually, uh, strangely for both being uh, trained in a realist tradition, is an optimistic one, right? The declining great powers actually have much more flexibility and adapt adaptability in how they can respond to decline. And obviously, if you're thinking about this in the US-China case, as many of us uh, are, that's good news. It suggests that the US <laughs> has some flexible options in how to manage an international system where the distribution of power looks a lot different than it has in the past. Great, thank you. So um, the first time I encountered this argument was the article that you and Joe had in international security. Right. Um, and obviously you expand on this in the book. And the thing that I had in the back of my mind through, in both cases sort of going through my head is, is the United States a declining power? Now to me, this is obvious, but I have encountered um, many times uh, ter terrific resistance to this, uh, this suggestion. Partly, I think, this is, there's almost a tautology here that, that great powers in decline retrench, and retrenching great powers are in decline. And so there's a, a, a really a, a strong desire from those who are opposed to retrenchment as, as grand strategy um, uh, rejecting the argument that we need to align means with ends, that they're very resistant to that. But I also think that there is a, a fairly sort of normal and natural sort of psychological and sociological aversion to people admitting that their country is, is you know, the country's best days are behind it. Uh, uh, you go to Rome and you still see SPQR, right? So, you know, that, that's, that's there. So, so the question I have is, it's twofold really, um, is this Mo how, how common is it for countries to sort of embrace decline, sort of accept it, or, or is there something about the United States in particular that makes it sort of quite 
resistant to this suggestion. For the, after all, the United States believed it could do just about anything well before it was a great power. So is this, is this a pathology to the United States or is this more common than, than I'm giving it credit for? I mean, our expectation going into this is that we would look at policymakers and they'd be very reluctant to accept what they, was in the economic trends or in uh, their balance sheets or in their trade receipts. Uh, and we actually found that there was a willingness of policymakers in private to actually see what was going on. Now, they might not admit it in public. Right. Right? They might be very reluctant to accept the indicators. There might be delays in, 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 or in who would accept uh, that reality and at what time. But we were actually surprised looking at the archival documents how policymakers seemed to be aware that these trends were taking place and were willing to accept them. Now, it is a tried and true technique, at least publicly, to deny the fact that you are in decline. And there's a great uh, quote by a French policymaker uh, that we found where he described France's policy as the policy of the smile, that they would try to pretend <laughs> that everything was fine and France was on the rebound in the wake uh, of the Franco-Prussian uh, war. But I think that privately, if the indicators are, are working a certain direction, and those indicators are creating security problems that are tangible, that have to be managed, that you have to adapt in the face of, um, that that, that re- psychological uh, reluctance breaks through. And I, I even think you can see that in the U.S. case, right? Uh, president, uh, when, when he was President Obama, denied the idea that the U.S. was in decline, said it was foolish to think so, but would talk about how there was something afoot in Asia and how there were new powers that were emerging, right? So there was a recognition that something was up with the balance of power, even if the language of decline was uncomfortable. And I think you see a, a, the same thing in the current administration. Strategic competition, talking about revisionist, revisionist actors, uh, isn't talked about in the language of decline, but it's a recognition that the U.S. faces a much different geopolitical circumstance. Right. I guess my only response to that would be, I completely agree with you in terms of the way President Obama attempted to frame this strategic choice, right. um, and yet he's pretty roundly criticized for it. And of course, the whole, pre- the whole premise behind Make America Great Again, or one of the key premises, is a rejection of that admission that maybe we need to trim our sails a little bit. Right. How would you respond to that? I mean, I think this is often the difference uh, between recognizing uh, absolute versus relative yeah. decline, right? You would see this often in the British policymakers as well. They would say, well, Britain's not in decline. Others are just catching up. Right. Right? That's the right. saying, we're in relative decline, but we're not in absolute decline, right? Um, So I think that's a way that policymakers sort of square the circle, right? Um, To recognize that things are more complex, that competitors are more capable, that there's security challenges, that they have fewer resources to dedicate to those security challenges, but not wanting to say we're not in free fall. It's not because of our gross mismanagement. We just have to do things differently through retrenchment or reforms. Great. Thank you. Josh, tell us about your uh, approach and how it may, uh, again, I see parallels uh, between uh, what you and Paul and Joe are writing about. Uh, so explain a little bit about your, your thesis and, and how you go about proving it. Sure. So um, unlike my three co-panelists, and I'll, and I'll echo uh, what has been said, and I think we've all, been, we've all been better for the discussion that we've had over the years, where our work is stronger for the conversation. I come at the questions that have been discussed in almost the exact opposite way, right? The work that we've seen thus far has been almost entirely about how existing great powers think about their world, right? How they manage their own declines, how they manage rising states. I come at the question of what do rising states do to declining states, right? Let's look at the question of what do rising states do? Not what do they want, not how they think about the world, what do they do? 
And although we have this common belief that says rising states left to their own devices, all things being equal, will be these nasty, predatory, aggressive, revisionist states, when you look across time and space, you actually find a lot of problems with that, right? Not only do we see rising states sometimes kind of biding their time before jumping on a more aggressive bandwagon, but often we see rising states actually pull their punches and do shockingly nice things for declining states, even after a power transition. Now, we all know the Anglo-American story, how the United States helped Britain out after the Anglo-American power transition of the 19th, perhaps early 20th centuries. But we also don't talk about the famous Prussian-Austrian cooperation, right, where a rising Germany was, went to the mats to keep Austria-Hungary alive as a great power. During, you know, leading in large part to World War I. Likewise, if thanks to recent declassification of Soviet-era documents, we have all this evidence that the Soviet Union wanted to keep Great Britain around as a great power after the Second World War. So there's all this variation what rising states themselves want. And what I try to do in my book is explain this behavior. Now, I, I'm not going to get into the political science uh, jargon because I'm bored of it, and I imagine you guys don't want to hear it. But the, the, the bottom line is that what... Thomas? <laughs> would, it, would it be a credible intention if I did? Um, the, the bottom line with all this is that Rising states tend to pursue what I call supportive or predatory strategies vis-a-vis -vis declining states, uh, depending on what a declining state can do for them, right? In other words, when a rising state thinks that it can use a declining state to keep other adversaries in check, other great power threats in check, and a declining state itself doesn't look like it's going to be a big problem, doesn't have a military that can punch a rising state really hard in the face, that's when we're going to see the, a lot of those cooperative, supportive strategies. Conversely, when a rising state looks at the world and says, hey, look, the declining state is the only thing standing between me and dominance, me and hegemony, that's when we're going to see those predatory strategies. And, and in that scenario, the weaker militarily a declining state becomes, the more problems we see in the relationship, the more predatory, the more aggressive behaviors we tend to see. Now, what I, what I find in the book, looking at cases of power shifts, relative power shifts since the 1870s, is that this behavior captures, this theory captures a lot of great power behavior. And to, to preview the, the bottom line, this is actually an optimistic story for the United States going forward. Because although we're talking about a new era of great power competition, although the US is increasingly thinking of the US and China as in a new Cold War, whatever that term me means today, uh, we forget that China lives in a world where there are multiple threats to its security. Right? Japan is still a scary actor. India is coming up. And there are scenarios where Russia might be a problem for China as well. The bottom line, then, is that the US has opportunities not to uh, has opportunity to play off of these Chinese concerns, and if it plays its cards right, actually extract concessions from our rights, trying to find ways to encourage Chinese support for the United States. What this requires, though, is a real reorientation of how the U.S. thinks about shifts in the distribution of power going forward. Great, thank you. Um, one quick question, which I think you can dispense with, uh, I, I think, pretty quickly. You talk about the way the United States uh, uh, dealt with uh, Great Britain after World War II. Um, and my notes were, you know, by 1945, the United States wasn't a rising great power. The United States was a risen uh, great power. Uh, 
And then it occurred to me, though, that it doesn't really matter if you're a theory. I mean, after all, Stacy looks at the period, what, 1815 to 1823, around the time of the acquisition of Florida. David looks at a more traditional transition between Great Britain and the United States at the turn of the, turn of the 20th century. Um, or, for your purposes, for your theory, are all states either rising or declining? It's, there's not really a point at which a, a country is sure. risen. Well, I, I think on this score, uh, Paul and I actually overlap quite a bit, right? What matters is how the relative distribution of power is changing at right. any given point in time. So yes, there can be states that are rising, and once they ascend into some mystical level where they're really starting to become rising great powers, but even when there are existing great powers, shifts in the distribution of power as one country's economy grows, as technology grows, its economic base shrinks in relative terms. As those shifts occur, countries are still rising or falling or right. declining. Right. Um, what is, actually, I'm going to ask that question last. So uh, you claim that U.S. policy um, towards the Soviet Union was consistently predatory. That's in, right. uh, that's in quote. So leaving aside whether that was wise or foolish, uh, did that strategy succeed or fail in your opinion? And the reason I ask that question is because it, it might tell us things about uh, other attempts at relegation. Sure. Right? So if a rising power makes a bid to relegate a declining power out of the rank, relegation, by the way, is a wonderful concept for those of you who are not soccer fans. Uh, so uh, it's, 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 it, it, his book workshop, it, it, I came up with that term. He did, it was at my book right, conference. There we That's go. Right. Good, good. Um, if a rising power makes a bid to relegate a declining power and for whatever reason, uh, the, the, the relegated power reemerges, sort of ascends again to the Premier League ranks, as it were. Um, is, this, is this a mistake, or is this just indicative of sort of the, the rough-and-tumble nature of international relations under anarchy? Well, so I'll, I'll, there, there are a couple of questions built into that. I'll try to take them in sequence. In, in the book, what I try to argue is that there are four kind of ideal-type strategies, right? Two supportive strategies that rise these states can pursue and two kind of predatory strategies that rise these states can pursue. Uh, I'm not going to get into the lingo, but relegation is the worst of all the predatory strategies. Right? This is a situation where a rising state picks up its metaphorical sword and lops off the head of the declining state. <laughs> right? Relegates it, pushes it out of the great power ranks. Uh, and in my narrative, the U.S. pursued uh, a predatory strategy towards the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, as the Soviet Union is a declining state, and at the very end of the Cold War pursued a relegation strategy. So you asked the question, was this a wise strategy? Well, in terms of long-term outcomes, I think we can say that it has caused problems, right? But policymakers also need to make decisions in the spur of the moment. They need to assess the world that they confront. And let's be honest, in 1987, 1986, 1985, whatever point you want to pick in that, in that era, uh, the world was still bipolar. And if the U.S. cared about its security, it had a natural incentive to try to figure out a way to not have another great power around that can contest its security. Right. So the U.S. was very wise, in my estimation. Uh, it calculated well, if you want to use that terminology, and assessing where the Soviet Union was and only pushing for the jugular, only picking up the sword and relegating the Soviet Union when the USSR could no longer really effectively push back. Okay. Um, I have one other question, which I think I, I want to relate to both you and to David, um, because, David, you note that part of the now or later dynamic is that, uh, in terms of states, sort of these temporal considerations, is that um, they're contextual, right? So the nearby threats may be more urgent, and then there's a tendency to sort of uh, 
if not exactly ignore, but sort of sort of try to to sort of tamp down or or postpone the more distant threats. And and again, geography mm-hmm. is is relevant here, not just time, but also geography, and that that allows for biding in time. Josh, you note that rising powers tend to um, either support or undermine declining powers in sort of old-fashioned power political terms. That's how I interpret it, right? So predation theory predicts that if a declining power has utility mm-hmm. uh, and, is, and is likely to resist or impose costs right. on the rising power, then the rising power will be supportive. Yeah. Um, and so this seems, like I say, this seems structural to me. This seems sort of like good old-fashioned naked power politics, the strong do what they will. Is that an accurate assessment? Um, and again, it relates to da- David, you know, that I recall, and I'm sure you've heard this many more times than I have, uh, John J. Mearsheimer talking about uh, states being free Who? to roam. Who? Free to roam, right? Is that when states are free to roam, they have, they, they, they can, they, uh, they're afforded the luxury of ignoring nearby threats because there are no nearby threats or not urgent nearby threats. How do you, how would either of you respond to that? Well, I do. Th- so I guess how I would respond is to say that the argument I make in the book is that, um, and this is somewhat obvious to say, but that th- threats are relative, right? And that, you know, one can't, so in the specific, the specific case in the book where I talk about this the most is um, the U.S.-British relationship at the turn of the 20th century when the British are trying to figure out kind of how to handle this rising U.S. and what to do about this rising U.S. And, and one of the arguments I make is that one of the reasons that the British ultimately decide to kind of exceed to every American wish in the Western Hemisphere, right? Uh, Panama Canal, Alaska, uh, you name it, Venezuela, right? The British basically just, just give up on all of it is because there's, an, there's another more pertinent threat that they're having to address, right? Which is the, the threat of a rising Germany, which they're, they're seeing and becoming... Um, ever more conscious of, and that's just a closer threat both geographically and in a, in a temporal sense was emerging. So threats are relative, right? And we, we can't just treat all threats in the system as if they are the same because they vary in these important ways. Right. What do you think? Is this a structural argument? Multipolarity being more conducive to this sort of horse trading and using of, of uh, declining powers to your benefit? Yeah, I'm a Luddite. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly what it is, right? There are going to be certain geopolitical configurations, which we can roughly talk about in multipolarity versus bipolarity, that are more or less uh, conducive to a declining state keeping a rising state in check or a rising state uh, seeing utility in a declining state. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I just want to note that this is not pure polarity as determinism here, right? Declining states, even in a bipolar world, can do things that shape the incentive structure of rising states, right? If you're a declining Soviet Union, the thing that keeps the U.S. in check is the fear of, a, of the is the U.S. fear of having a war with you. Right. So. Although the Soviet Union overspent on its defense, pumping resources into a pretty good military and looking like it's going to use them was not an irrational strategy. Right. And it wouldn't be irrational going forward if the U.S. thinks or the U.S. finds that China is the only adversary plausibly in the world and China has no other threats to worry about for the U.S. to build up. However, in multipolar worlds, that, that choice of building up a military or not carries a lot more weight because the more you look like an adversary in that world, the less likely rising states are to engage in supportive or cooperative behavior. So even within these polar constructs, even the different distributions of power, declining states have choice in how the world operates. Right. 
Yeah, I think that is striking that it's so easy in this day and age to be pessimistic uh, about many things. Uh, but it is, uh, it's the optimism that I, I definitely get from yours and from yours, uh, Paul. But also, there's a, there, there can be a very optimistic reading from David and Stacy's work. Um, but let me put this in the starkest possible terms, just so we don't get too sunny optimistic here. Um, I initially framed this question for you, Josh, but I do think it's a question that all of you can answer as it pertains to your own theories. So, so to Josh, the question is, what's the one thing that Trump, the Trump administration could do to increase the likelihood that China adopts a supportive, as opposed yep. to a predatory approach to U.S. decline? Or conversely, what is the Trump administration doing that is most likely to lead to predation? So I'll ask that question to you, but ask the, three, the, the other of you to think about it in the terms of your theory. What is the one thing the Trump administration is doing that, is, that would lead to a most optimistic scenario under the decline that you, talk, that you and Joe talk about, Paul, et cetera? Can you think about it in those, can you talk about it in those terms? Sure. It's a very simple answer. It's stop making China the clear-cut adversary, period, hard stop. China faces multiple threats nearby. It faces Japan as potential security risk. It faces India in the future. And the US is pushing Russia and China together when objectively, Russia and Chinese relations have historically been tense and probably would be absent an American threat or American challenge, if you want to use that lingo, to both. So the more the US makes China the singular focus of its defense planning, the more it simultaneously injects itself and makes itself the focus of Chinese efforts, and the more it actually undercuts China's incentive to try to bid for American cooperation. The more the US backs off a little bit, the more likely we are to see a cooperative strategy. And I'll just note here that for all the rhetoric we see emphasizing US-Chinese competition, we forget that the first thing the Chinese uh, press reported after Trump's election was a plea for the US to remain engaged in East Asia. Mm -hmm. right? well, we've kind of right. forgotten over this statement, right. but that's a, that's, a, that's a fascinating choice, right? If you think China really wants to take over East Asia, as many of the, as many of the administrations seem to believe or seem to be talking about, that's an interesting public position to take. It's actually counterintuitive and would probably be wrong. Right. So I would encourage the U.S. to bat in the Trump era, as you asked, to back off making China the singular adversary. Paul, what do you think? What, what could the Trump administration do to ensure that we decline gracefully as opposed to the other way? Yeah, I mean, I, I, here I disagree with Josh. I think that the U.S. focus on China makes complete sense, given that China is the one eclipsing it in relative uh, power um, and as a consequence, creating all sorts of security challenges that the U.S. is having to meet with uh, uh, less relative uh, resources. So I think the focus on China, the concern about China, uh, uh, makes great sense. Um, I just wish the Trump administration was implementing retrenchment more sensibly when it comes to China. So, so what might that mean? Well, one is it's not to look at China just as a sort of East Asia, Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific issue, but try to see it as part of a global issue, right? That if you want to focus on the challenge posed by China, then you're going to probably need to redistribute resources from other areas, right? So to see this as a global challenge, right, and to focus on where you want to actually allocate your resources. Um, I think the other thing is not to see this as just a competition versus accommodation binary. One of the things that, that jumps out in a lot of the, the cases of retrenchment is that countries will retrench in order to compete, right? right they will be very right. accommodating in some areas so they can draw bright red lines at strong points and say, here you shall not right. Pass, right? And I think that the idea of, of seeing China as a binary competition versus accommodation is not particularly helpful. Uh, I think the third and final thing is that often what, what Joe and I find in our cases is that allies are really useful uh, when it comes uh, to 
decline, in part because you could hand the bag over that to them and say, all right, you deal with the rising right. uh, power. And so finding smart and intelligent ways to support your allies, um, and, and this doesn't mean just giving them everything that they want, but integrating them in a sort of coherent grand strategy where you're drawing back and shifting over certain responsibilities, I don't see a great deal of, of that kind of uh, felicitous grand strategy on the part of the Trump administration when it comes to allies in East Asia. I want Asia. to leave time for Stacey and David sure. real well, quick, Josh. Let me just jump in and clarify. I, I actually think Paul and I are, are in agreement more than not. When I was saying don't focus so much on China, it was on this adversary versus uh, accommodation binary that you were hinting at. I, 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 my point is to say it makes sense to worry about China, but it doesn't make sense to make it this singular focus and the sole ab and, and treating it as a pure adversary. Right. That's what I was trying to get at, so um, just to clarify. Stacey and David, do you want to weigh in on this as well? Sure, really briefly. Um, so first of all, to, to, to echo the things that are being said about China, but to kind of do it from, from, from the perspective of rhetoric and what it is that, how we respond to what states say. I think one thing, and you saw this actually, I think before the current administration, was a shift in understanding what China's doing to, from being generally engaged to being a more assertive China, right? And you, there are actually a fair amount of studies about this. China's becoming more assertive. And a lot of it is being based around what China is saying, particularly what they're saying in the South China Seas, right? Mm -hmm. A move to describing, in particular, this area as being part of China's core national interests. Right. And my concern here is that there are cases where great powers develop, um, they become overly, overly certain that they're dealing with a revolutionary rising power. And then everything is interpreted through that lens, right? So the great powers begin to respond to things that really don't have anything to do with their national interests, right? My concern is that the United States develops this idea that China is a revolutionary power full stop. It will start to not find those rooms right. for compromise that it needs to. Because great power politics isn't just about competing. It's about finding those areas that you can compromise. Mm -hmm. And if it's mm -hmm. just China can't be sated, right. then we're going to miss those type of opportunities. Second really brief point is that um, we talked about the beginning, Chris, about this return to great power politics. Mm -hmm. I do wish the, uh, the President Trump's administration would learn that a return to great power politics isn't simply about a return to competing in, mili in military and competing in economic terms. It's actually understanding that what you say is important, right? Because that's actually part of how you also mobilize support in the international system. It's right. how you keep those allies on board. So returning to great power competition doesn't necessarily mean saying that all these rules and norms that are out there are obsolete. It's right. actually using right. those in your favor. And, and that's something I hope that this administration and subsequent administrations. Yeah, too. see my notes here say talk matters. Yeah. See, she said that you got in the it. book, talk matters. <laughs> yeah, so my, um, my somewhat perverse and completely facetious answer um, to this question is that the U.S. should stay bogged down in places like Afghanistan, <laughs> and maybe Iraq, throw Syria, Yemen, and maybe a good crisis in the Baltics, right? Um, uh, and the, the reason, and it, to be clear, facetious, but the, the reasoning is the argument that I've, I've laid out, right, which is that I think states only have so much bandwidth to deal with threats, right? And when they have immediate threats that they're dealing with, they pay less attention to what are seemingly more distant threats, right? So um, to the extent that the U.S. has more immediate threats, I think it pays less attention to China. To the extent that the U.S. has fewer immediate threats, it pays more attention to China and, and the risk posed by it. Very good. Thank you. All right, so um, we have time for questions, a few ground rules here. Um, please wait for the microphone, um, and that's mostly for the benefit of those who are watching online. Um, please identify yourself and your affiliation, and uh, I'll remind everyone the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means phrase your question in the form of a question. Um, 
I'm going to, uh, in the interest of there are so many of you, and I want to give everyone a chance, as many people as possible, um, I'm going to bundle a couple questions together, and I've got two mic uh, holders here, so let's, uh, let's try to do a couple. So, J.E., why don't you get this question right here, and Madison, why don't you get this gentleman right here. Uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Speak up just a little bit. Yeah, sir. There, there was a time when um, we, we would sort of be the champions of freedom and, and actually risk a little bit of interfering in the internal affairs of, of evil powers. Mm -hmm. um, but now it seems that everything is sacrificed on the altar of stability. Hmm. Um, and, and I wonder if that's wise, given that once you do that, the evil powers creep up, continue to rise, continue to pose a threat. So given that China presents no good news whatsoever to us and other freedom-loving people around the world, um, where's the clandestine campaign to topple the Communist Party? Okay, thank you. Uh, sir, uh, go ahead. And I should say, since there are four people up here with me, if there's a particular person that you want to direct the question to, please say so. Otherwise, it's for the, it's for the group. Go ahead, sir. It's a free-for-all question. Lou Gagliano of the CTAC group. Uh, Stephen Walt, in his book, uh, it talks about leadership and how part of the decline of the U.S. position has to do with retreads of foreign, foreign policy people advising presidents. How weak is our foreign policy profession really stooped and are we really reaching down to the people who have a better perspective on what's going on in the world today? All right, thank you for your question. Good questions both. Who wants to take either of those? So uh, uh, the, the foreign policy community and dealing with a rising China. I will say that I think some of what I've heard today, and you guys can clarify, is that uh, the, the picture is not quite as stark as you paint it, that there's evil and good. But maybe, maybe uh, others would want to pick up on that as well. So I'll take this opportunity to plug my first book. Um, uh, Great. My, my first book was on military occupations and just how hard they are. And I, and I use this opportunity to plug it only to say that I think regime change, whether clandestine or overt, um, is awfully hard to do. Um, and it's awfully hard to do in a way that gets you the outcome that you're hoping to get. Um, so. I think uh, approaching the notion of undertaking regime change in a country as large and complicated as China is, um, that's, I think, a, a tricky proposition. In the age of social media? Uh, yes. yes. So just very briefly to echo David, uh, just out today from Cornell University Press, someone not on the stage today is Lindsay O'Rourke's book, which actually right. looks at the history of covert interactions. Right. So uh, if this is of interest to folks, and I imagine it is, I would encourage folks to grab her, her book, and I expect... Uh, not that this is not already a Cornell no, University <laughs> Press show. Well, and, 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 another and book I expect Cornell to pay me. By that book, you get 40%. 60. So, but it, it's out today, so it's fresh in our minds. Um, I, I do want to tackle a little bit how, you know, the, about the leadership in the foreign policy profession, right? Because what we're talking about, if any of our uh, policies or any of our insights are correct, we're talking about a period where diplomacy takes on incredible salience, not just managing existing allies, but getting messages across, communicating clearly one's diplomatic priorities, uh, saying what the U.S. will not do is as important as saying what the U.S. will do, right? Signaling that you will not do certain things. All this requires a real revitalization of the diplomatic core. And we've 
talked a lot about it, i.e. Cato and beyond, how American foreign policy has been over-militarized uh, in the unipolar era moment, whatever one wishes to call it. But with the return to at least bipolarity, if not multipolarity, this requires a real reallocation of the, uh, of the tools of foreign policy that I think I your book speaks to as well, Paul. Yeah. Um, I saw a question there. I'm gonna move my way up backwards. So Madison, once you get this gentleman, uh, right there, J.E., sir, there. And then I see, uh, and then, go ahead, sir. Uh, yes, um, my question has to do with the, uh, whether or not any of your theories have looked at the issue of insecurity amongst the rising powers. It seems to me that in the literature, if you read the history of many of these, uh, rising uh, entities, I think of uh, Willamine Germany and, and certainly Japan, there's this issue of we are being encircled, our, our power is being thwarted either economically or militarily, and I would also ask in this context um, the issue of, uh, frankly, racism in that view, which can be certainly applied to the view that Japan had uh, right. post-World War I and, and perhaps in some of the commentary that the Chinese uh, have in their, uh, in their view. Very good, uh, right there, sir. And then uh, Madison, very good. Yep, thanks, go ahead, sir. Monica Cohen, National Center for Public Policy Research. My question is for our first speaker, David, who uh, pointed out that uh, post-Mao China has been largely patient, but uh, so as not to draw too much attention to itself, uh, but that that patience is beginning to come to an end. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell us in what is really driving that growing impatience in China and what would be the best way for the Trump administration to deal with that? Thank you. Okay, and one more question right there. Go ahead, sir. Uh, Eddie Becker, filmmaker. Uh, if past is prologue, I was wondering about the imperial history of China, the Han dynasty, mm -hmm. their expansion, okay. and just what to expect in a continuity and disruption that happens throughout Chinese history. Where are they? Where are they at now? And how do you see that as in the past? Very good. So I will uh, just to clarify. So uh, all of these folks have done a terrific job of many case studies, some of which overlap, some of which do not. Uh, they have not specifically addressed that question, but I think that they might they might still want to take it on. So David, there was one question directed particular to you, but then uh, for the others, it's wide open. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting question about contemporary China, and, I, and as I've interacted with kind of experts on China, that they're somewhat stumped by it as well, although there are various arguments. So why has China maybe in the last half dozen years sort of grown more assertive, when if you followed the logic of my argument, it would have made more sense maybe for them to kind of remain patient during that period. And I think there are basically three sort of general arguments that are more or less kind of applicable to the, the case of China. Um, I think one that we see in rising powers has to do with domestic politics, and it has to do with a population that sees itself in a rising power that out of nationalism and other forces wants to see its leadership acting in more assertive ways. So there's a domestic political sort of incentive there. I'll hand in my realist card at the door. Um, <laughs> 
The, the second factor that affects some of these states is that they get baited into certain types of conflicts, right? Which is to say that smaller powers kind of poke and prod at them, often in ways to try and get the attention of other larger states to say, hey, you've got to pay attention to this rising power. And I actually think we've seen this dynamic uh, in the South China Sea, right? Where I think a lot of the blame goes towards China, and in many cases appropriately so for their behavior. But we've also seen some of the smaller powers there poking and prodding to get, in some cases, American attention. Um, and China finds itself in a position of, well, we can either sort of pay no attention to this, right, and let these small states do what they want, or we react to it and raise concerns. So what do you call reactive assertiveness, right? Or something that, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the third argument that I think is actually less applicable in the China case, I find more evidence, say, look in interwar Germany at various points, is simply that they run out of resources to kind of fuel their rise, right? Which is that a rising power gets to a point where they start to look for opportunities to expand their resource base in order to continue to fuel their rise. Okay, Stacey, you want to take one of those? Or? Yeah, um, so just to, to a couple of points. Um, one of the things that, 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 that you had said about the, the question of, of racism in Japan is the extent to which, I don't think it's determinative, but the way it becomes such a potent focal point for Japan's politicians, and particularly those on, on the far right in the 1930s, to be able to mobilize against the moderates, right? So this became very much a, we're never going to be included in this Western order. Um, we need to build an alternative order if we're going to have any sort of chances thriving as a great power, right? So um, back to you know what I was saying, the pay, great powers paying attention to what they say. Um, this, when you put this uh, stuff out there, when you begin to organize your world this way, this is exactly gonna be the point of resistance, right? And again, in, in Japan's case, it was a particularly potent one. Um, I think the, the question about imperial uh, China is really fascinating. Again, from a rhetorical standpoint, this has really begun, I, I, I think, to, to, to um, be integrated into Xi's rhetoric about rising China, right? It's not a rising China, as a matter of fact. If you listen to the rhetoric, it's a returning China, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This was the status quo before the century of humiliation. And it's, again, much like talking about the case of Japan, this is a very potent and resonant um, rhetorical point. It gets attention of a lot of, of, of China's domestic population. Um, I think it's an important one, but can also be a dangerous one because it suggests a return to the world that I'm not sure is exactly what the CCP's leadership wants. Um, so they're tempted to use it to mobilize support and get legitimacy for their own government, but it might be promising a little much to their own population than what China can deliver. Paul? Uh, just briefly on this sort of rising powers, what do they do in aggregate? What do they look like. That, that wasn't the focus of our book, but we actually did look at the numbers on that. Uh, and one of the things we found is that rising powers do invest more in their militaries in terms of military spending and increase uh, uh, force strength, right? So that's not that surprising. What did also stand out is that rising powers also tend to sign more alliances and actually tend to avoid militarized crises with other states. So this is both suggests that they're more assertive in what their domestic investments are on the military side, but more cautious in their foreign interactions. And this suggests, I, mean, I think consistent with some of the other arguments here, that they're trying to bide their time, not create encircling alliances and the like. Um, we did find one set of rising powers that did seem to behave aggressively. And what was interesting there is it was rising powers that were both rising against one state but simultaneously declining against another. <laughs> right? So it was like this creation of cross pressures. And we haven't fully explored this, but part of the assumption is that this creates all sorts of weird psychological tensions for policymakers um, who both feel very threatened because they're declining, but also feel like they can take on the entire world because they're rising. So we see this in Germany prior to the first 
World War. We see it uh, uh, in Germany in the mid 1930s. So it may be these sorts of cross pressures that create sort of strategic myths, right? We are encircled by enemies, but they're all paper tigers and we can defeat them right. easily. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll very simply say that to the question of are rising states generally insecure, yes, it's very much so. One of the most striking findings of my book is that even states that are coming very close to, sometimes even surpass existing great powers, tend to be risk averse, tend to be a little uh, worried about their security. And if you, if you chew on that for a minute, there's a certain logic to it, right? If states can want to continue expanding, continue growing the future, they should certainly be worried about losing the power and security they already enjoy. So not only are, do rising states tend to be uh, insecure and a little risk averse, many great powers tend to be insecure and risk averse. Yeah. Uh, let's get some more in the back. Uh, uh, right there in the middle in the blue shirt. J.E., there's a gentleman right there in the middle, middle section. Uh, put your hand up nice and high. There we go. And, right, and then right next to then you can hand the, bike, the person right next to you. And then Madison, there's a hand up there on the wall. Go ahead. Uh, hello, my name is Evan Sankey uh, from Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, my question is for Professor McDonald. Um, do I have your name right? You can call me Paul, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you described the, the French diplomat who said, oh, you know, our policy is the policy of smiles. Yeah. And, uh, the, I'm, I, my question is about the, the actual conversion to retrenchment, the transition from a policy of something else to retrenchment. I, I often feel like it would take a crisis or a catastrophe of some kind to convince the U.S. to pursue retrenchment. And I'm wondering what the what your research tells us about that. You seem to portray it as something that happens gradually. Well, the policymakers, they look at the data and they sort of gradually retrench or um, could you elaborate on right. that? Is it gradual bit? or is there some precipitating event or some sort that's of right. crisis? That's right. Very good. Uh, right next to, go ahead, go ahead, ma'am. Yes, go ahead. Uh, hi, thank you for sharing your thoughts. I'm Jiaming, also from Johns Hopkins Science. Uh, and so my question is, uh, because ever since I came to States, I hear a lot about the China threat and stuff. Uh, so today is my first time hearing about let's not take China as an absolute adversary period. <laughs> so I'm quite wondering, uh, how do you evaluate the new colon colonialism uh, statement about the China's behavior in Africa? Mm. And how do you evaluate Xi Jinping's image today? Thank you. Very good, thank you. And then there's a question on the wall. Yes, sir, go ahead, you have the mic. Checking, okay, go ahead. hey, my name is Jonathan Fernandez. I'm with the uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And this question is for Dr. Godhart. Um, what are effective ways risen powers confront um, forces that are revolutionary, that they see as fundamentally against their power in the world? For instance, a lot of people in our Western world order see communism as fundamentally at odds with the liberal democratic order. Thank you. Okay, very good. Three good questions. Who wants it? Uh, I guess, actually, Stacey, why don't you take that last one first, because and, and then Paul, you had a question directly to you. Okay. Um, so how do they actually confront revolutionary power? So I, I, in some ways, I take this as two different questions, which is how how do they? Um, and then the question <laughs> that is maybe doesn't mean they're effective. how should they, yeah, yeah, right? right. Um, and I actually think that when great powers decide that rising powers are revolutionary, they're they're willing to then go to the mat. Um, that they're willing to they're willing to engage in aggressive balancing behavior even at the cost of war, right? So when the United States decides that uh, Japan is a rising revolutionary power, 
um, and it really makes the shift between, I, I argue, between 1931 and 1933. It begins to build up its capacity to deal with Japan, right? It's, it's less willing to negotiate. Um, it's much more willing to accept that it's going to take aggressive containment measures, even, and if you think about this, this is pretty remarkable, even as it's trying to come out of a depression, even as it knows by the late 1930s that it might be doing this at the cost of a two-front war, right? So it is willing to really engage in pretty costly balancing measures in order to be able to do this, right? Now, I think... To be clear, there are some times that this is appropriate, right? But during a lot of this conversation, I'm also, um, not to go too political science, I, I, I'm breaking Josh's promise here, but I'm also- <laughs> It was I'm, his promise, my promise. His promise, not mine. I'm actually reminded- Revolutionary. <laughs> but I'm actually reminded a lot of what realists were writing at the beginning of the Cold War. And, you know, and what they were writing was that, look, this, this is absolutely a threat. Right, that the, the Soviet Union is a threat. Communist states can be a threat, but they were also very careful to say the United States exists in a world of power politics, and that doesn't simply mean that you go to the ground every time you see a threat. It means that if you want to avoid the catastrophe, and at this point they were talking about the catastrophe of major power and increasingly major power nuclear war, you need to figure out how to order a world in a world where states have different interests. Right? And I think, for example, the United States has managed in the post-Cold War world to have a lot of time where it assumes that states have similar interests, and it's time to figure out how to order a world with divergent interests from a lot of different powers. Very good. Uh, Paul, you had a question from Evan. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so it, in the case studies, it actually is a little bit of both. So often what you'll see is some general recognition that we're in decline. Our economy is in trouble, right? Our tax receipts aren't what we expected or wanted, our trade isn't where we wanted it, right? Um, but then you also often see, as you suggest, a crisis that then focuses the political establishment, right? So Russia's disastrous war in the Balkans in the late 1870s exposes all sorts of flaws in their military system, bureaucratic system, focuses the mind on the need for reform, right? The British experience in the South African war around the turn of the 20th century focuses everyone on, you know, we're bankrupt, our military has all these problems, right? We can't do everything uh, in the periphery in the ways that we used to, right? So I think it's a little bit of both. The this, this seeds is set by the general indicators. Crises focus the mind and create political urgency to act. I think this is why we find that those domestic political explanations I mentioned earlier don't actually seem to hold. It is precisely when you're declining and the threats are becoming more considerable, that that tends to create political unity and narrow the, the space between domestic political actors and focus their attentions on the need for reform. Okay. And we had one other question about yeah. China's neocolonialism in Africa. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that the more general question, um, you know, I've known Stacy now for like 20 years, and I, she's, she's finally made a dent in me, right? Which is, <laughs> which is to say that I will, I, will, I will acknowledge that how different actors talk about their relationships matter a lot, right? Um, and I think the, the ways that both the United States and China have been describing their relationship, um, I think it's worth paying a lot of attention to how the U.S. is doing that. And this goes back to the question about who's in policy positions. Um, one of the things I discuss in my book is self-fulfilling prophecies between rising and declining powers, and we ought to be wary of self-fulfilling prophecies in the current relationship between the U.S. and China. Josh, no, okay. Um, time for more questions. Way in the back there. I got hands way in the back. You've been very patient. Go ahead there. And then uh, anyone on this side? Madison, uh, uh, well, right next to you there. Go ahead. You ready? Go ahead, sir. Yeah, my name's Lee Davis. Um, I'm a Cato member, but I'm 
not affiliated. But anyway, my question really has to do with the current administration's policy of retrenchment, uh, becoming isolationists, threatening to you know get out of NATO. It seems contradictory to wanting to be a great power, but yet if you listen to the current president, you know he's talking about being great again. You know, how is that being great again if you're not willing to be a globalist power? Great question. Uh, and then uh, go ahead, sir. You uh, you have the mic. And then Jay, you, there was someone right next, right, right there, right there. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Alad Vida from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation as well. Oh, see, I didn't know you two were sitting next to each other, but of course, I called from the two people from SICE too. So go ahead. Oops. Uh, yeah, my question is from the great power point of view. When you look at a revolutionary power, does it make a difference if it's a revolutionary power like um, Nazi Germany or Japan, just interested in conquest? or if it's something like uh, revolutionary France or Iran that's interested in exporting revolution and changing the global system. Does that make any difference? Okay, that's a good question. Revolutionary power. I was gonna ask a related question, so very good. Uh, sir, you go ahead. You uh, have the mic. My, my name is Jacob Levitan. Uh, I came on my own. Uh, my question's more about Russia, uh, since- <laughs> Yes, Russia, the other, yes, the other country that's in the uh, national security strategy. Them. <laughs> we haven't talked about it yet, go ahead. And uh, it was said that you know, uh, towards the end of the Cold War, the USA pursued a regulatory uh, a strategy towards the Soviet Union, uh, and that now rising powers, which I would argue Russia's kind of becoming again, is uh, would either pursue a predatory or a supportive role, and obviously they're pursuing a more right. uh, predatory role towards the U.S., but also simultaneously, tr while trying to maintain their independence, are pursuing a supportive role towards China. And I was wondering, in your opinion, where, like, uh, where Russia fits into all this specifically with uh, like its passes multiple times being regulated and it's relegated. Kind of supportive role. Yeah. Very good. Re regulated, yes. Re relegated, yeah. Yeah, it's a good word, relegated. relegated. <laughs> I know what you meant, very good. All right, so three good questions. Uh, Josh, why don't you take that last one first? Sure. Um, just to make sure I understand the question properly, it's how are we to understand Russia's behavior given that it seems to be relegating some countries and uh, cooperating with others? Well, I, I, I think, the, the number one, I, I, I would, push back a little bit on the characterization of what Russia is doing. I think it's very easy to focus on uh, Russian policies, not, and not enough attention given to what Russia is not doing. The ways, the, the, this, what I would regard as some notable elements of restraint, small r, in its uh, foreign policies, notably not overtly invading uh, Ukraine, continually highlighting the concerns it has with the uh, settlement in Ukraine, and also, in some cases, calling for a continued NATO presence, at least uh, in somewhere in Europe, even if not fully in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that it's pursuing a predatory strategy, but not a relegation strategy, which indeed makes a little bit of sense because from Russia's perspective, there's no more maneuvering room in Europe, right? There's a solid block against it. In some ways, it makes sense that you have to, under those conditions, try to break open the existing structure in order to find maneuvering room. So in that sense, Russia's behavior makes a great deal of sense, at least in Europe. As for why Russia and China are cooperating, it's about the U.S., the U.S., and the U.S. to echo, <laughs> to echo the defense strategy today. Right, yeah. Uh, Paul, I think that question about retrenchment, make America great how? How can we make America great by retrenching? Yeah. I, I actually think that, that the Trump, and this is not, this is the least controversial thing I may, anyone will say. I don't think their policy here is completely consistent or coherent. <laughs> um, which is to say, I think there are elements that are consistent with a strategy of retrenchment, right? So the, the recent decision, or maybe non-decision, who knows if it's a decision, to draw down the U.S. presence in Syria, right? Um, 
that reflects, I think, the president's assessment that U.S. national security doesn't hinge on what happens in eastern Syria. Um, I think that's actually a fairly reasonable position. I wish there had been a process that had reached that conclusion, and I think that an actual strategy would have implemented that in ways that cooperate with local partners to try to leave something there that's consistent with U.S. interests. But the instinct there, I think, is right, right? That the U.S. has bigger issues to be concerned about, right, than achieving a certain outcome if it's possible in the Syrian civil war. I think there's other elements of the Trump administration's policies that are wildly at odds with retrenchment, right? I think spending $716 billion on national defense is not particularly consistent with retrenchment, especially since it's enabled uh, the Defense Department to essentially delay or muddle reforms of its acquisition policies, its bureaucratic structure. It's allowing it to invest in things like end strength in the army. Why end strength in the army? No one really knows. It's not how clear that's consistent with a focus on China and the Indo-Pacific. Um, so I actually think that, that those sorts of policies, sort of throwing resources at the defense establishment and calling that a strategy, it is not, right? And then if you were actually doing retrenchment, right, you would be maybe drawing down some of those resources and focusing them in ways that actually deal uh, with an evolving balance of power that's getting more complex uh, in the Asia Pacific. And then the question about revolutionary power, you had a very specific definition of what a revolutionary power is, but he's asking, are there distinctions even within that, that universe of revolutionary powers? I mean, I, th I, th I think there are distinctions, and I talk a bit about, I mean, revolutionary is really this powers that are aiming to, to overturn a system in whole or in part, right? I think the distinction that you were driving, uh, drawing was whether or not it matters that it's an ideological revolution or whether or not a, kind of a trying to overturn a material order, a territorial order is important. Um, in the unsatisfying version, I would say they're both important. But more to this, what I would say is that I would actually push you a bit on the idea that what Japan and Nazi Germany are doing is simply they're trying to overturn a territorial order. Mm. And as the example I would use, it, the United States isn't upset that Japan is going into Manchuria. Mm -hmm. For decades, they have acknowledged, by the time you hit the 1930s, they acknowledge that Japan, Manchuria is within Japan's sphere of influence. What they're concerned about is the fact that Japan turns that into an ideological moment to say they're building a counter-political order in the Asia-Pacific, right? So you can't separate out both of those. And the final thing I'll say, if David's going to channel me, I'll channel him for a moment. <laughs> Capabilities are going to matter, right? States can say all the time that they're going to be a revolutionary state and overturn yada, yada, yada. If they can't do it, a great power isn't going to pay attention, right? So it's really got to be those combination of things. All right, so we have time for one more round of questions. Make them good. There's a gentleman way on the back row. J.E., get him way, way in the back. Oh, I know that gentleman. They, ah! All right, go ahead, Jim. Go. Yeah, Jim Goldgeier, Council on Foreign Relations, Library of Congress, great panel. Uh, since I'm not normally around this many retrenchers slash retrainers, I You're way to, back there. What are you I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to ask Paul, follow up on Paul's point and ask the question: Given the proclivities in the U.S. bureaucracy not to support retrenchment, yeah. wouldn't the only way to get it be not to go through a process, but to just mm -hmm. do what Trump did? Mm -hmm. Very good question. Uh, Jay, there's a hand right there, and uh, actually there are two hands right there. So let's get uh, those two questions and we'll bundle them together. Go ahead. Ed Rivera, attorney. Uh, my question for you is there seems to be a sort of taking for granted that, of course, the U.S. is declining power and China is a rising power. But, of course, rising powers sometimes get knocked down either by their domestic uh, internal policies, by coalitions, being relegated by a superpower. So I was wondering if the offers have identified a threshold and to what extent those thresholds are important. 
Good question. And then right next to you, sir. Yeah, right in front of you. There you go. Thank you, J.E. My name's Lincoln Oliphant. I'm here uh, unattached, except I'm with my wife. There you go. <laughs> uh, Mr. Chairman, Mike, you have said unequivocally that you believe America is in decline. I'd like you to give two or three of the best examples of that and have the rest of the panel. Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Comment. That would be me. That's right? you. Okay, very, yes. For the moment here, I, I will, I'll take that question first. And I, and I teed it up to Paul um, because I remember so distinctly when, uh, when I was first approached to write something, to write, write us an article uh, about American decline. And I said, I don't want to write about an article about American decline because no one in the United States wants to hear about American decline. Uh, I want to write an article about how, in relative terms, our ability to bear the burdens of the world on our shoulders by ourselves or nearly by ourselves is, as a practical matter, absurd. It's just not possible any longer in relative terms. But that does not mean, speaking to the Make America Great, that does not mean that in absolute terms we are worse off. So it really is about navigating this definition about relative versus absolute decline, which I concede is extremely difficult to do. So I will respond to your question since it was directed to me, and there were two other questions there. So who wants those? David, Can, can I actually just jump in on, on um, so another, another Cornell book that could have <laughs> been on this panel, um, Mike Beckley's book Unrivaled, which I, I recommend to all of you, which, yeah. which Beckley's argument, which you may have seen around, is that essentially he's, he's taken the opposite position, which is that the U.S. is in a kind of primacist position and should expect to remain that way um, for decades to come, in large part because the challenges that China faces in sustaining its own growth and some of the social dynamics there are going to make it um, challenging for them to kind of going forward. Um, the, the only thing I want to say on this, and it's a bit of a, I'd say it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine at the moment, right, is I actually think this debate to some extent is kind of beside the point, right? Um, it, only in the sense of I'm not particularly concerned with whether measured using some whatever index you want to use, the U.S. is X more powerful than China or, you know, who's the most powerful country, who's the second more, most powerful country. But what is important, right, and I think goes to the relative power question of where the trend lines are, right, and where the trend lines are headed. And I do think there is reason to think that the trend lines are headed in a direction of in relative terms, China becoming... And, and let me also pick up on that. There, There is an ideational... I never use that word. But there is... A component of this is it's not merely the capacity of others to resist, but their willingness to do so, right? Which is not a function of, of capability, material capability. It's are they bought into the legitimacy of the current order or are they resisting some of those? And again, this gets to what some of what Stacey wrote in terms of legitimation strategy. And that was just one more sentence, which is to say the, the second most powerful in the state in the system can still cause an awful lot of problems for the yeah, most powerful right, state yeah, in the system. Right, yeah, right. All right, so uh, Paul, uh, Jim had a question picking up on your point, so if you want to answer yeah. that. So. Uh, the question of how would you actually sell a policy of retrenchment in, turn, in, in, in the bureaucracy? I, I think two quick things on that. One is to, to make a distinction between a policy of restraint and a policy of retrenchment. I think they often get conflated, right? I think a policy, policy restraint would really be moving U.S. foreign policy more to an offshore posture, right, where it sort of let world politics do its thing and then only intervened if the balance of power uh, was going to be upset. I think a policy of retrenchment simply means getting less ambitious overall and refocusing one's ambition to deal with rising 
threats, right? And that could still be a very active and engaged policy, particularly in the region where you identify your core national interest to be most uh, threatened. Um, so I actually think something like a policy of retrenchment was sort of experimented with under the Obama administration in the pivot or rebalance mm-hmm. to Asia. I think the instincts were consistent there, which is we have gotten mired down in expensive wars that are inhibiting our ability to manage this complex region, and we need to focus there. Now, it may not have been as ambitious or as far-reaching as I think that my co-author and I would argue, but I think if you sell this uh, the right way in the bureaucracy as a way of focusing on an urgent threat and making the most of your resources, I think retrenchment is actually quite a, a politically sellable policy. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? All right, well, good. I, uh, I want to thank, please join me in, in thanking our panelists. That was a really rich discussion. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming out today and setting the bar for 2019 at Cato events way up here. Thank you for that. We'll never meet that. Let me also say, We will be uh, adjourning to the second floor for lunch and continued discussion. Uh, Let me remind, there are are restrooms up there as well. Uh, They'll show you, uh, our conference staff will show you the way. And then let me also remind you, everyone hold up your books one last time. Let me remind you that we are selling books today. And thanks to Cornell University Press and the Cato Institute, if you buy two, 30% off. If you buy three or more, can you believe it, 50% off. We're crazy here. Buy a book and uh, read them all. Thank you all very much.